Good morning, Grace Lamarada. I almost said Grace Fullerton. That's where I came from. Grace Lamarada. Good morning, I'm Kenny. I'm one of our elders over there. I love every time I get a chance to be back over here with you, especially at Christmas. Oh, it's beautiful. Richard Dix pulled this together. Walt said, we need a frame around this manger. It looks very plain. And Richard thought, where in the world am I going to get all that? And who, who all of a sudden had a tree that was trimmed that just needed all that stuff? Just had a friend, just needed some stuff, and all of a sudden, bada bing, Richard Dix makes this beautiful stable. So, and if you have young kids and ever read that book, This is uh, the Stable, This is the Stable, Dusty and Brown. No? Anyway, it looks just like that. Well, good morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't, it's a great kids' book, beautiful illustrations. Our copy was given to us by the Hubbards back when their boys were little, and we had babies. And, all right, Matthew chapter 1. Fourth week in our Advent series called Messiah, where we've been thinking back through promises that were made uh, about the Messiah and what he would be like and what he would do when he came. But uh, recently, last few weeks or so, since Thanksgiving, uh, I've been looking at lots of baby pictures. I don't know what it is, but Grace Fullerton, at least, we've got babies, babies, and more on the way. Uh, and here we've had a couple of babies. Uh, McMillan's, Laurel and Daniel just had their little girl, their second, uh, Catherine, I think they're going to call Kate. So we've got proud grandparents that were here in the first service, 8 a.m. But um, my nephew was born uh, a couple days after Thanksgiving. Here's a shameless uh, opportunity to show you a picture of him, Judah. His name, Judah David Clark, uh, Seth and M's second. So Ruth and Judah. But... Um, I've been looking at baby pictures the last few weeks on Facebook as they're posted every day, and it's been helping me sort of have a fresh sense of amazement at lines like we just finished singing. The sleeping child that you're holding is the great I am. I look at a picture like that, all swaddled up and, 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 and fast asleep, and think this here is one of the central images uh, of the Christian faith is that God became like that. It's amazing. We should never get over that. It actually struck me this morning that the manger is as significant of a symbol of the gospel and the Christian faith as the cross is in a way, right? We put crosses everywhere and we wear crosses. Not many manger necklaces or mangers on the wall. Understand why. The cross is where it was finished. And, and, and Christ made peace with God on our behalf for our sins. But if it weren't for the manger, then that cross would not be significant for us or helpful for us. This is a thought. At the fulcrum of human history, at the pivotal point of human history is a baby born and lying in a manger. The manger is the turning point. Think about the story of line of the Old Testament. Really the main plot thread through the whole Old Testament is one story of a birth that will come. The world was waiting for a baby. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve were tempted and they sinned and God brought curse upon them and upon Satan, the tempter. And in the words that God had for Satan, we hear the first promise that we are waiting for a baby. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, between you and mankind, between your offspring and her offspring. And he, this offspring of Eve, will bruise your head, crush your head. 
and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, a child is going to be born one day that will destroy our enemy, Satan. And death that entered in because of his lie and because we believed it and we rebelled. A few generations down the line and God tells a little bit more of the story and he says, this isn't just going to be an offspring of Eve, but of Abraham. Who's Abraham? Well, until God showed up and called him, he was just a man. There was nothing special. And God sovereignly picked him and said, you, take your wife. I want to take you to a far country. I want you to uproot and go to where I send you and I'm going to establish you in that land and I intend to bless you in remarkable ways that you don't deserve, but nevertheless, I'm going to do. And part of that promise, at the core of it, he says, Abraham, I will make of you a nation, a great nation. From you, you will have descendants who will one day be a great nation and in you, in that nation, through your line, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we put these promises together, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Abraham in crushing the head of the serpent of our enemy will also include blessing, not just for a few, not just for one nation, but for all the families of the earth through this baby. Fast forward a few hundred years and and Israel now is a nation. God has made good on some of these promises and Abraham's line has turned into a a nation of 12 tribes and they're in the land and Jerusalem is established and King David finally is a king over Israel after God's own heart. And in his later days, God comes to David and adds another promise onto the promise to Eve, onto the promise of Abraham, and now to David, who is in this whole line, he says this, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body through your line, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon, David's son, was the first king in this succession on this line of David that God said will one day reign forever. But he died. He was flawed. Kings after him came and died. Some of them were good like their father David. As you know, if you've read through the Old Testament, many were not. Many were wicked and turned their hearts and the hearts of the people away from God back into idolatry got so bad that the nation finally split northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah, and God finally said enough for Israel and took them down. And then Judah was left and Jerusalem still, but continued to have kings that were so bad. And finally, God said enough. He said, I'm not done with you. I made a promise, but for now, I'm suspending David's throne. And he allows Israel to be taken over by Babylon and carried off into captivity and the temple destroyed and and the throne is empty. Until the day that a righteous king would come of his own choosing and be born and fulfill this promise and establish a throne forever. I've been flooded my mind this week with lots of lines from Christmas hymns that are trying to get at all these things. And the line that struck me is, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. That means longing. Has nothing to do with a pine tree. (laughs) Till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. Look at the beginning of Matthew, his gospel. Matthew does what probably 
if you were going to write a biography, isn't a tip on engaging the reader right from the beginning. He gives a long genealogical list to start off, but he knows what he's doing. Right at the beginning, he starts with a genealogy, and he doesn't start it all the way back at Adam like Luke does in his gospel, but he starts with Abraham, and he traces this lineage from Abraham all the way down to David, where another stream of promise joins the Abraham stream into a bigger river of promise, and it continues through Solomon and the kings that followed David. But then in his genealogy, it hits the point where God suspends the throne, and we come to verse 12, and, and the genealogy moves right through the deportation to Babylon. And all of a sudden, we go from names that were recorded in the Old Testament, kings that were remembered, to a whole bunch of names that, that, that sort of got obscure and no one knew, all the way down to this trickling little stream at verse 16, this man named Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. And that's the drum roll. Here comes the baby that the world was waiting for. He's going to be born to Mary and Joseph. And Matthew 1, 18 through 25, which is where we're going to be this morning, records the way all this was announced to Joseph. The way God revealed to Joseph, Joseph, it's time. The birth that the world has been waiting for is coming on your watch here. Let's read it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18... It took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, had resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah is the one he has in mind. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's stop. I want to pray. Lord, would help us hear his word this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us. Uh, we're going to Consider your glory in these few verses, the way that the Christ had to come so that we could be saved from our sins and rescued. But more than that, uh, we could be uh, restored to fellowship, relationship with you forever. Um, and the way that you've done this, God, um, is mind-blowing. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be uh, marveling this morning and astonished we'd adore you and that, that our lives would be lived in light of that astonishment and gratitude. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last three weeks, let's recap. A, a shepherd is coming, Isaiah said, that one day uh, this, this Messiah would gather lambs from all over the world and would heal them and tend them and lead them and guide them as a gentle shepherd. And that was Jesus. 
And the next week, a better temple is coming, that this temple that for a while uh, stood in the center of Jerusalem where peace with God was made for sins and the people could approach God. When Jesus came, he did, did away with that. There was no need for a temple anymore because what Jesus did once for all became the new way and permanent way of access to God such that we become the temple and his Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And we have a hope that one day when Jesus comes back, this new heavens and new earth, everything will be temple. There'll be no need of temple because everywhere there will be the unobstructed glory of God. No need of sun or moon, it says, to light because the glory of the Lord and of the Lamb will be its light. That was what came in Jesus. Week three, last week, Randy, the sun is coming. God will send a son. A child will be born. He'll be wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And today... God is coming. Messiah will be God. I don't want to focus on Joseph's story necessarily in this scene, his moral dilemma as he's faced with this and the unpleasantness that he knows will come because this child born through the Holy Spirit is going to be a hard sell to this community. And he did the right thing. He trusted God and he took Mary as his wife. Um, and he raised Jesus as his son, and he obeyed. And that's a beautiful part of the story. But what I want to focus on here this morning is this, how the Christ was going to come and why he was going to come that way. So if you're taking notes, three things. Number one is the how. God himself was coming. The Christ was coming. God himself would be the Christ. Point two and three are the why. He's coming this way himself to save us from our sins and to be with us. That's why the Christ must be born this way. So number one, God himself was coming. This was this part of the mystery of the Messiah that was revealed that was mind-blowing, was that God himself was going to step into the stream of humanity. He was going to be born into the line of promise that he made. Just think about it. The uncreated one, the eternal, the only being who has no beginning and no end was also now going to show up in a genealogy. He was, Jesus is going to show up in a human genealogy. This is the one Paul said was the one in who, by whom all families in heaven and on earth are named was going to take on the name of one man in particular, Joseph, son of David. God would be born. It's the point three times in this passage keeps reiterating the uniqueness of how the son of Mary would be born. Verse 18, before Mary and Joseph had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 again, the angel says to Joseph, don't fear to take her as your wife. She has not sinned. She has not been unfaithful. This baby conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, it's never happened in history. It won't happen again. This baby has been conceived by God and Mary. And then verse 23, as he recounts the the promise from Isaiah 7, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. The point of this, the significance is that this baby uniquely will be both man and God, born of Mary and yet divine not inheriting the genetic material of Joseph or any other man, 
But this one in, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, the angel says to Mary, because of this, that he's born this way, he will be the holy one. Born in every way like us and yet without sin. The, the hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh, says, King of kings and yet born of Mary. As of old on earth he stood. Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood. God himself was going to take on, add to his nature, a human nature, body and blood forever. Paul says in Philippians 2, in other words, God the Son was going to take the form of a servant. God was going to serve us by being made in the likeness of men. There's a word we have for that. It's called condescension. That word can hit our ears with a negative sense or a positive, beautiful sense. The negative sense, ugly condescension, is when someone who's not better than you or more important than you treats you or acts as if they are. Have you ever been condescended to? It's repellent, isn't it? We hate it when someone acts. It's not loving. It's prideful. It's an act of disdain and scorn meant to make you feel your littleness and for me to feel exalted over you. It's ugly. But condescension doesn't have to be ugly. Condescension can be beautiful. There's a little reflection of beautiful condescension. Last year I saw this picture and read the article connected to it. Small Santa in Charlotte, North Carolina. This little boy, Braden, who's age six with autism. His parents had brought him there to get a picture with Santa and he was terrified. And so this Santa gets down off his big fluffy green velvet throne (laughs) and lays face down on his stomach, creaky knees, gets down with this snow globe to warm up to this little kid, to show him that he doesn't have to be afraid so he can have his moment with Santa. And there's something in that picture, I I think that you see it, you see that and there's something in you that says, that is beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful, it's tender, it's compassionate, it's kind, it's moving toward this little boy. And yet, I would say, this still falls short of the sort of condescension that we see in Christ as he steps down for us. Here's what I mean. In this, that Santa is not more important than that little boy, is he? No. He's not of a higher rank or station than him. You know, let me back up. True condescension is the voluntary descent from a rank uh, or, or place of dignity in relation to an inferior. That's real condescension, where there actually is a difference of rank involved. And they're both created in the image of God. They both have equal worth and dignity and value. In fact, last year I, I sent this picture in an article to Eric Tanis, and we were talking about condescension. He says, actually, if you think about it from a human perspective, that Santa probably has much more to repent of than that little boy. <laughs> but there's something where we might say, if he wasn't willing to do that, if that kid came up and was crying and he just sat up there, next, I don't have time for that kid, that we'd actually sort of despise him for it. How dare you? Who do you think you are? You're not better than that little kid. So not to take away from this, I think this was a kind act. It was a beautiful condescending act, him coming down for this little boy. But how much more has God the Son absolutely stepped down from the highest rank or station 
to us who are in every way inferior. And not just inferior by means of we were created by God, but inferior because we rebelled against God. And we're in sin. If ugly condescension is someone who isn't better than you or more important, treating you as if they are, this condescension, by the way, here's a warning, I'll probably say the word condensation a couple of times and you just know what I mean. (laughs) I think I said it twice in the first service. Condescension, condescension, condescension. This condescension of God is the opposite. It's God who is infinitely more important and better than us, treating us as if he weren't. That's the incarnation. That's what Christ has done. Uh, in, the, in that Nicene Creed, made its way into one of the verses of, O come all ye faithful, and we sing, true God of true God, light from light eternal, humbly he enters the virgin's womb. The virgin birth is an act of humility and God stepping down and stooping low for us. I want us to just think about how low God got in becoming a man. First of all, he willingly subjected himself to birth and early childhood development. Nine months in the womb, birth, and early childhood development. How many of you right now, don't raise your hands, but hypothetically speaking, as an adult, can you imagine saying, I'll willingly go back to the newborn stage? Being looking at my nephew Judah, and I was there the next day in the hospital, and you know, at that stage, he's thinking, I don't know what's going on in here. His eyes are like not even focusing on me. His tiny little neck can't even hold up his massive head, right? He's totally helpless. If it weren't for the doctors and nurses and Seth and Emily, he would die. He needs them for everything, food, warmth, changing him, cleaning him, medicine, everything. And even he's swaddled. I mean, talk about a picture of helplessness, right? If you've never swaddled a baby before, it's like a straitjacket for an infant, right? Nurses are expert. They get that one arm down and then they pin that other arm down and they tie them all up and they love it. It's cozy and warm, but it's helpless. Some of you might be thinking, oh, that sounds wonderful to go back to that stage. <laughs> As you're stressed out right now in the Christmas month, oh, just to be swaddled and just have someone feed me and clean me. And, but no, you wouldn't choose to go back to helpless when you've known independence and freedom and maturity. God chose to be born. I don't think any of us would choose to go back through early childhood. Elijah now, our youngest, is three, and we're being reintroduced to this stage of life. When you're three, every day you have things to learn. Well, I guess we still have things to learn every day. Sorry, bad point. But he is learning new tasks, skills, and abilities every day. Vocabulary, physical coordination. Uh, Betsy's out of town this weekend with Lily Mae at a uh, wedding in Texas. I've had a few days solo with the boys until my mom and Joe got into town. But uh, I counted, he has three new scabs since she left on Thursday. (laughs) There's one right here, there's one on the chin, I think happened at the park yesterday. But man, he's learning physical coordination. Every hour he's bumping into a corner of a table or tripping and falling with his socks on our tile. And he has to learn how to walk properly. He has to learn how to eat properly. Trust me. Every day, foot up, one foot, his move, his signature foot, one foot up on the table and everything with his hands. We teach him to use a fork. We have to teach him vocabulary and how to pronounce words. He still calls bicycles bicolos, which I love. And I want him to say that as long as, not to junior high, that would be awkward, but it's cute. God the Son 
willingly subjected himself to the process of childhood development. It says in, uh, in Luke that he grew in stature and in wisdom. The omniscient, omnipotent God took on flesh and had to learn to walk and talk. He stepped down in doing this. This is condescending to us, stooping low, treating us as if he's not as important as he is. The Son of God chose to endure puberty. <laughs> Raise your hands. How many people say, favorite period of my life? <laughs> Loved it. Junior high years, favorite three, two or three, four years of my life. I don't even like saying the word puberty. Just awkward. When you're a boy, your voice changes, other things change. Start growing that peach fuzz on the top of your lip, unless you're Caleb... Uh, uh, Parker, and then you have a full beard by that point. But I just had a little peach fuzz. You got to decide whether or not you let the cat lick that off or you just wear it as a a, a symbol of pride, call it a mustache. It's awkward. Your emotional levels are crazy, your hormones and identity, and you're worried about what other people think. And God the Son went through puberty and was a tween, which means the Word made flesh did what his mom told him to. He, the sovereign God obeyed his parents. He subjected himself to be an obedient son in a household where mom and dad get to tell me what to do. <laughs> is that amazing? He got even lower than that, though. If you think childhood is stepping low, he was an adult, too. <laughs> adult, being an adult in this world is hard. This world is fallen. Jesus endured suffering. He endured all the temptation that comes in being in a fallen world. He suffered at the hands of people. He suffered because of the, the effects of the fall in the world. And then he ministered to the lowest of the low. He didn't just get low by being an adult, but in his adulthood, he served as the servant of the lowest. He touched lepers and healed blind. And known public sinners embraced them. He poured his, himself out for three years in tireless ministry such that his mom and his brothers at one point said, please come home, you're going to kill yourself doing this. That's how low he stepped. But he even went lower. He did wash his disciples' dirty feet at his last meal. And he did it as a picture of how low he was really going to step by going to the cross Philippians 2.8 says, here's the lowest that Jesus stepped. Being found in human form, he came obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Son of God died a shameful, undeserved death as an innocent man and hung there in shame and agony, and his father let it happen and didn't intervene even though that was the one death in all of human history that deserved God to intervene and say, this isn't happening. Why would he do this? I, I, I don't know if, if, if you would call yourself a Christian or not, if you've considered other gods of other religions, other faiths, but have you ever heard of a God who, who acts like this? of all the gods out there, a God who steps down like this? It's the uniqueness of the gospel. Here's why he became one of us. Point two, 
so that he could save us from our sin. That's why the Christ had to be born like this. That's why these things had to take place. Look at verse 20 and 21. The angel tells Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. Joseph, name him God saves, because he will save his people from, his, from their sins. The mess of our sin was such that we needed gods to step in from the outside and clean it up. Sort of like trying to clean up a, a paint spill with a paintbrush that's soaked with paint. You're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to make the mess worse. We needed God to come in and clean up our mess. But to do it, he had to be one of us. The wages of sin is death. So a human needs to die. Man needs to die. That's why Jesus becomes a man so that he in our place can die. That's what this means in Hebrews 2 when it says, therefore, since the children, that's all of us people, since we all share in flesh and blood, we're all equally guilty as men and women um, in Adam's image who are, have, are fallen just like him. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, the same blood and flesh, so that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of uh, death were subject to lifelong slavery. We sang, that's what we were singing earlier. He was found in human fashion. Death and sorrow here to know. That's why in human fashion, to know death and sorrow. Why? So that the race of Adam's children, doomed by law to endless woe, may not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below. Evermore and evermore. Because in human fashion, he died in our place. That's the gospel. That's why God got low. So how should we respond to a condescending God and a condescending Messiah? I want to give three suggestions. First of all, we give him glory. We see his condescension and we adore him for it. We praise him for it. Because the, the gospel is not just a set of truths for you to decide to agree with or disagree with. They are that, but they're more. They're a display of the very character of God and desire of God for you. They show you God. So in his condescension, as you see what God has done for you, the proper response is to say, I can't believe it. I don't deserve it. Thank you. The condescension of God in the, in the incarnation ought to give you reason to run to Jesus and not away from him. Here is a picture of a God that it should be easy to say, I can trust you with everything. I can yield my life to you. You have shown me what you will do for my best interest. How can I not trust you with everything? With what you command, with what you promise, even though I don't see all of it come to be yet, I can trust you. His condescension ought to encourage us to trust him and love him. If you've never done that, it's not difficult. It's difficult to humble ourselves and come to God and acknowledge that we need him alone to clean up our mess. But once you acknowledge that, it's very simple to ask him. I was thinking of 
little town of Bethlehem gives you the perfect simple words to pray and say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that if it weren't for you, I would not be able to fix this mess and I would need to die. The hymn says this, cast out my sin, enter in and be born in me today. That's what you say to God from the heart to get right with him. You receive his free gift through the cross by that, saying, God, cast out my sin, not because I, earn, I, I of anything I've done, but because of what, what Christ has done. God, enter in, make me new, be born in me today. If you've never done that, please don't leave here this morning without doing that. Come ask me, I'd love to do that with you. Second, here's a way not to respond to the condescension of Jesus. Don't out, try to out-condescend Jesus. Looks humble on the outside. It's actually not. It's prideful. Remember Peter when Jesus got up from the table and took off the outer garment and got the basin and the towel, and Peter goes, oh, I see what's going on here. Gets down on his knees, starts, I don't know who got washed first, but cleaning up that guy's dirty feet, and Peter goes, oh man. And Jesus gets around to him, and he pulls his feet back, and he says, no way. You're not going to wash my feet, Lord. It looks humble. You'd think Jesus would commend him for his humility. Oh, he gets it that I am his Lord and more important with him than him. But what he says to Peter is, Peter, if I don't wash you, you can't have a share with me. In other words, Peter, if you can't humble yourself to allow me to serve you in this, then you won't humble yourself to allow me to serve you in laying down my life as a ransom for you. Peter seems to get it, and he says, okay, Lord, then wash all of me. But we can do this. We can have an attitude in the Christian life that tries to out-condescend Jesus. Because here's one of the ironies of our sin nature, I think. On one hand, every one of us, because of sin, is naturally self-centered and tends to view the whole world and everything and everyone in it as though it revolves around us. Is that just me? Okay, good. And so we get disappointed when everyone and everything doesn't work in such a way to bring about everything that I want in the way that I want it. And we get very bothered by this and we act as though everyone ought to serve me. But here's the irony, is oftentimes when, people, when someone actually humbly, personally tries to serve you or tries to serve me, what do we often want to do? No, 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 that's not, that's not necessary. Oh, you didn't have, no, 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 no. We, we try to shrug it off, Why? I think we're uncomfortable being served. There's something in that our pride wants to say, no, 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 I, I, don't, need, I don't have a need that you need to fill. So we, on one hand, we're selfish. We want everyone to serve us. But when it comes right down to it, our pride really often makes us um, reluctant to be served. And that will keep us from Christ in the first place. But it also it will stunt our Christian growth in our, in our Christian life. If our attitude is something like this, Jesus, thanks for fronting the money to pay my bail, but now that I'm out, I'm darn well going to pay you back. That's trying to out-condescend Jesus. It doesn't work like that. Every week when we gather to worship, one of the things that we do is we acknowledge we're still broken. <laughs> We're still standing in need of the gospel one week's worth more than I was last Sunday. We're not coming in to say, oh, I think I shaved a little off of my debt this last week. If you think that way, you actually added more to the debt that Jesus paid. 
So don't try to out-condescend Christ. And last, I think this should have a response, or it should have an effect of making us a humble people toward one another. Over time, the more we understand and live in the knowledge that the holy God Almighty has stooped low to serve us and to forgive us and to show grace and kindness to us, that ought to have a softening effect and a humbling effect on the way that we treat other people and see other people. That's why Paul said, I want you to have the same mind of Christ. And in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. And don't just look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Is there a relationship that comes to your mind this morning in which you need to humble yourself? And it's hard. Here's one suggestion. Stop and think that that person that is so hard for you to imagine humbling yourself for, God humbled himself for that person. That's what the gospel says. That Christ has humbled himself for that person. Surely you can. Surely that helps. And pray for that person. Ask the Lord to help you. Humble yourself. So God got low to save us from our sin. Third point, second reason in this passage that the angel says that God must be, uh, become a man this way. And that is to be with us. Look at verses 22 and 23. The angel said to Joseph, all this was to fulfill this that was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, saving us from our sin wasn't God's end game. That was the first step in what God wants most for us, that God desires to be near us. And not because he's needy, not because there's this perfect little hole in his heart that you fill, and once you come in, he'll, he'll be more complete. It's just the opposite. He wants to be near you because you need him. And to be near him is best for you. And one thing, if anything, God was teaching through the Old Testament history were these two things. God wants to be near us, but because of sin, he can't be near us the way he wants and the way we need so the tabernacle and the temple were pictures of this. Here's this place, and it'll be right in the center of your camp, Israel, and right in the center of your nation, Israel, and I will meet with you there. I will provide a way for your sin to be atoned for there, and you can meet with me there, and I'll dwell in your midst, and I'll be your God, and you will be my people. But it's also reminding you I can't be as near to you as I desire because your sin. God wanted to be nearer still, so Jesus comes, Emmanuel, God with us. And you would think, now finally God is as near to us as he wants to be. But even in Jesus, dwelling bodily, touching us, embracing us, speaking to us, teaching us, forgiving our sins verbally, even in that, Jesus, God's glory is still veiled. Last year was the first time it struck me in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. When Jesus comes, God's glory is still veiled because of our sin. There's one little glimpse at the transfiguration that Peter and John get that, whoa, there's something way more glorious than what we can see with our eyes here going on with Jesus. And then whoosh, it's closed again. You know when the veil is torn open? Not when Jesus is born on Christmas Day. It's torn open when Jesus in the flesh dies for our sin. Then the veil's torn open. 
And what can happen then? This. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, here's how near God can be. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God makes us new. I love in these verses that we are made to be part of God's family both by adoption and by birth. We're adopted as sons, but then God does something by his spirit. He puts his seed in us, his spirit, so that we are also, we bear his, his seed and we grow in, in likeness to him. That's how near God wants to be with us. And how should we respond to a God who wants to be near us and wants us to be near him? Well, we draw near to him, right? We draw near to him. Hebrews says, therefore, because we have this great high priest who has become one of us and taken on our sin and paid it in full and risen again and now is at the throne of God the Father to intercede for us and make access for us, what do we, how do we respond to a God who wants us to be near? It's simple. We, we, we draw near to him. We ask him for mercy and grace and help in our time of need. We lean on him. We rely on him. We, we put our hope in him. We walk by his spirit. Take a minute. I want you to pray silently. Every, every week that our grace group meets at least, my first question is, is how does all this that we've just heard need to turn into prayer for you? Just take a moment, consider that, and, and pray silently. Father God, thank you for not withholding even your son to save us for your, from our sin. Jesus, we thank you that uh, equality with God was not something, was not a deal breaker for you. You were willing to set that aside and to humble yourself to the point of death on a cross for us. Thank you for all that that means for us, all that that has won for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you right now stand Father's side, interceding for us, that we can call on you right now and you, we are heard. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us this morning, that's helping us walk by degrees out of death into life until the Lord comes back. God, I pray that you'd humble us toward you and humble us toward others. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.